Yo, 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 and welcome to another episode of the Marvin's World Podcast. Podcast where we speak to real, let's just say, real shepherd's pie individuals, or should I say fish and chips, but with the extra bit of tartar sauce and mushy peas. So real intriguing people who <laughs> provide insights that will help people like you and me make what we love a full-time job. If you like the episodes, or if you like, if you like the episodes, please share it with your friends or give us a review on iTunes. If you don't, don't tell anyone and just share it to people you hate. In this episode, we listen to the delightful and the absolutely shastastic and hilarious Robin Perkins. She is an American pro comedian in the UK. She started a comedy career in the UK. She's been doing it for around nine years, and she has been many through many different experiences on her way up to being a pro comedian on the UK circuit. But what makes her very different to a lot of other comedians is that, though there are a lot of comedians and promoters, but she is, how you say, a pro comedian and promoter. And they are very sort of difficult things to be in, as I am one myself. Like, because balancing relationships with your fellow colleagues and then running a gig is a very difficult thing to do. There's a lot of fishy business that goes into comedy. And we talk about how it would help a lot for both sides of arguments if more comedians run gigs because they can see it from both sides of the argument rather than just the one side. And if you can only see it from one side, you, you can't, you have to, you have to see things from both sides to get a proper understanding of things and maybe to have a better relationship with people. It's like when you do things, if you just think it yourself, you're gonna have an effect on others. Whilst if you can see it from the other side, you can understand each other and you can know how you act and behave in order to have a better relationship. Now that sounds very philosophical, but it is the way it is. Um, it was a great episode. She spoke in detail about the specifics of running a show and like different energies of different comedians. How if you put comedians with too many energies together, it can be a bit boring for the audience. She also discusses how you can't overuse a topic. And she even spoke about how a really fantastic bit of emceeing from comedians from the Australian comedy store. I won't go too into it because they will in this episode we'll explain it clearly but it was a real sort of there's a real sharp bit of emceeing advice for any comedian that wants to get MC or anyone that wants to host a show there are some really big nuggets of information there there's also information on like I think there's great information on how to progress on the London comedy scene but also in any comedy scene how you know you may when you get to a certain point in comedy sometimes when you're new you think that you can do any gig but you fail to realize there's a lot more to it than that. That some audience probably won't be for you. But look into it. Like, and, and one of the things is take things when you're ready. Like be patient. Good things come to those who wait. It's one of the big sort of takes from this episode. It's a fascinating episode. I don't want to keep you going any longer, but Robin, she's absolutely lovely. You're gonna love her, and it's gonna be fun. To, you're gonna, it's gonna be 
let's not just say any words. Let's introduce Robin. <laughs> I, hey, it only took six minutes to get there. Um, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Hello, howdy, howdy, howdy. Hi, how are you doing? Uh, not too bad, all things considering. How have you been keeping? I, I see it's quite eventful in your home nation. <laughs> oh my God, I know. I, I've never, well, most of us have never experienced an election that has taken this long with somebody who is uh, so, un, it's just going to be the worst, like I just, a child. <laughs> it's like trying to run a country with a child who doesn't accept fact. He's, he's just trying to do some funny things to try and like overturn it or he's just trying to sort of like a last grab to stand to power or something. Yeah, I know. I know. His, yeah, he's so, he's got a massive right amygdala. Um, I will say I mean, at least, at least there'll be no more hacky Trump jokes. That's the good thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it's true. Somebody did ask me about that. I'm just like, I, I think audiences have gone beyond hack Trump jokes anyway. I think they're kind of sick of them. Um, and it's just gone to the point where it's like, it's just so depressing. You don't, it, it's just a, yeah, it's very polarizing because you have the people that weirdly support him. And then you have the sane people who are just, uh, yeah, I don't, yeah, I think it's time to be over Trump jokes. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a bit sort of like in, in comedy as well. There's there's occasionally a bit of politics, you know, there, there might be a, would you think there'll be a stage where there's like, a certain part of comics like they called the the something something comics and then the other side something something comics well i mean like right wing and left wing <laughs> yes i mean in terms of like trump or people that use trump jokes or people that support him no i'm just saying like in terms of like i think pol like politics i mean it's it's always going to be a divisive thing it's yeah, yeah it's something that i i try and stay away from it's 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 a funny thing if you go with politics i mean football teams or anything like that boom like you're having a good conversation with someone and then you mention something they're on the opposing side with boom your enemies yeah yeah no it's true yeah football is very much uh sorry i'm just trying to get my computer to stand up on its own there we go uh yeah no i know football is it is very polarizing but uh and i think that the divide between left wing and right wing right now is also becoming more and more defined and that is becoming scary but we're hoping it is uh, that uh biden can pull it out and hopefully at least not on obviously the uk comedy scene but at least in america i know one of his goals is to unite and depolarize the states which i think is much needed so together you, 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 you're saying yeah. <laughs> have you seen the, have you seen the planet of the apes film no i haven't which is i know there are so many films i haven't seen and i should uh, so that is just one that I will add to the list, um, uh, but no, I haven't seen it. 
because <laughs> I've seen this film called Rise of the Planet of the Apes, and there's this bit with Andy Circus where he says, "What's it called? Apes together strong, or whatever." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sounds like it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's going to take a lot of time to undo the damage that he's done, though. Well, it, what's it called? Good things come to those who wait, I suppose. Yeah, well, that's true. Very true. <laughs> and I mean, it was it was good that they had like comedy gigs like going on for a while. I mean, like I think for comedians across the world, like doing like live comedy gigs is a bit like, ah, oh, we're back home doing what we love, making people laugh, and then boom, it's taken away again. Yeah, I know the second yeah. lockdown. Although for me, it's actually weirdly come at an okay timing um so yeah i just had ankle surgery or foot surgery not ankle surgery foot surgery so i have to be on bed rest anyway so it's kind of nice to know that the whole world is on bed rest with me oh that's true yeah it's <laughs> but, but your ankle's all good and it's sort of getting better and ish yeah we'll see um i think i i don't know if i've done I don't know if I, have I done any of your gigs on crutches before? I don't know. I mean, it happens so frequently that, <laughs> that well, I don't know. I think you did do it once, but I do, one thing I think we both remember, uh, this was quite a while ago, and oh, I think you'll yeah. never forget, where you were doing your set, and then all of a sudden this woman goes, Oh, that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> and then you were stood there. <laughs> oh man i know she hated me well she she hated me because i was american i'm pretty sure right that is why and or she said something about the fact that i didn't want kids it was one of the two um that she but yeah she just completely uh yelled at everybody and then tried to stop the gig but i think we kept going as well did we keep going I think we tried yeah, to save it. it did. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a memorable. I'd forgotten about how awful she was. She was very drunk too, I'm assuming. It was, yeah, it was one of those things where, I mean, the guy who came in, he, he was very sort of King Arthur and very sort of the savior of the evening and said, I yeah. think we were having a oh. great time and we should carry on. And then we, we plundered on. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, sorry, you can't be here, Pan. <laughs> what's what's the name um, of the cat? Uh, Pan. She Pan. very much wants to be on the podcast. Um, Stop, Pan. <laughs> hold on, hold on. Oh. I mean, there we go. She just wants to sit down. Okay, there we go. Um, I know we did finish the comedy night though, didn't we? Like, cause I, it was very odd, and I just remember the bartender. I probably have the whole thing recorded, actually. Oh. <laughs> because I record every single one of my gigs. So if I had the date, I could probably pull it up on my phone and we could relive that moment. <laughs> um, but yeah, she just, she was very drunk, but then she just started yelling. But I thought it was, I had, I had offended her in some way, but everybody else in the audience was like, you did nothing offensive at all. Um, but everybody else in the room had really good will. So, yeah, it was odd. It was very odd. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you, you've had many journeys, I mean, like on the London scene and like 
but and I'd say in nights where something like that happens, where it doesn't sort of ruin the gig, it sort of brings people closer together in a way, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, uh, it really got the venue was really supportive, um, and everybody in the crowd was just like totally on board. I think yeah, if they didn't like the comedy before, they were trying to like it then so they were yeah it really brought the whole gig together after she left i mean but i think that's a function of like brits love to collectively hate something so <laughs> if it could be a woman <laughs> who yeah is that is that one of those sort of so in terms of the culture in america and here would you say that brits are a lot more pessimistic and a lot more critical than perhaps americans <laughs> um well, I think, yeah, I think Americans have a false sense of optimism sometimes. Like, it's not obviously not every Brit, not every American, obviously. But I think in general, um, we Americans go into any, a lot of, it is the tendency for Americans to approach any situation by um assuming the positive i think that that's might be changing i just i just know <laughs> yeah me personally i will walk into any situation and be like no 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 this is the best like i'll probably get murdered one day because i meet somebody and assume that they are amazing and as it turns out i mean it's like you really shouldn't have gotten into an unmarked SUV with a man with a gun. I would have been like, but he just wanted to take me to coffee. <laughs> um, yeah. I please, I please hope that's a bit in your set at some point. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely not. Although I am sure that my girlfriend will hear that and be like, we need to talk about stranger danger. Um, <laughs> oh. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I, I mean, you, you've had quite sort of a journey. I mean, you're, you're someone that's on both the promoter and sort of professional comedy, comedy side. And like you've come in from America. So you've got, I mean, that brings you sort of like a diverse sort of viewpoint on sort of comedy here. And I think being on both sides gives you tons of more, tons of stories in different ways. <laughs> oh, yeah, it does. Although I am trying with every day to do less and less promoting i actually hate promoting so much i uh so i only uh run one gig i'm at, which is left train home at the four thieves but i am trying to do as little promoting as possible but it does i think it would be helpful if if every comic at one point in time tried to run a gig because it just kind of gives you um a better outlook of what happens behind the scenes in comedy um yeah but yeah I, I one thing i but you, you seem to do it with a lot of um you seem to do things in a sort of a nice what you seem you seem to be able to keep people on the side which i think being on both sides I've, I've listened to some podcasts and like they say that if you want to be this light in comedy be a promoter <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, you gotta, it's, it's, I think it's a much trickier place to be both a comic and a promoter, because if you're just a promoter, you don't need to worry, not even about act feelings, but you need to 
um, worry about relationships with other acts. Um, because it's also getting to the point in time where a, a lot of acts run a comedy night. And so a lot of your income comes from small comedy nights as well. And so it's a very delicate balance with like people that run nights and, and how your relationship with them works. Um, but also equally, if you, um, I mean, you do get an advantage because you actually gig with people a lot so you know what certain acts are capable of yeah. and what yeah. they're not so that is the advantage but on the flip side you know if I don't think person a is good enough to like I if I don't think that they are the right fit is probably a better way to say if I don't yeah. think they're yeah. the right fit for a gig if I am not a comic myself it's perfectly easy to go person a I don't think you're the right fit for this gig yeah. but if I if person a runs a gig or is like depending on who the relationships are in the comedy industry then it might be problematic to tell that person that they're not a right fit for the comedy night and at that point you have to word things differently or try to avoid the conversation and it just becomes a lot more political which a lot of people i'm sure are like no you can just be honest you can't no you can't you can't you've got to be what's it called tactful yeah well <laughs> yes yeah well not just tactful but also political so yeah it's it's a difficult balance to try to strike but it's like if if um if you so if, if you're refused someone you got to say this gig this gig is a certain so and night it's a and we feel because of the that you wouldn't be a fit but we can't say oh boom, 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 you're not a good fit for a night. You have to sort of flower. You've got to put some niceness into it. You've got to... Well, it's not even just that. It, sometimes you need to um, just av avoid letting them know. <laughs> some people... <laughs> well, it, the other thing is, in what I say by, like, I think it's beneficial for every act to run a night, which is not realistic to do, because, and also some yeah. people just wouldn't be very good promoters. But to also um understand the nuances of every room and there are some people who are like well if funny is funny i can play any room and you're like Oof. well yeah i also understand that my audience prefers this and that like you need to understand like the four thieves at clapham junction has been going for eight years now and we do have a very regular audience that regular audience has changed over eight years but also um you need to, you know, push the boundaries enough of the regular audience to keep them coming back. So if you have the same acts every night, they're not going to come back. And not the same acts, but the same type of acts every night. They're not going to keep coming back because it's the same thing. But equally, if you give them something that they are not used to or are is not their style, then that might lose them. And people have to, it, it's, just, it's a very delicate balance and people don't necessarily believe you um but also I, I think it's important to know how much extra goes into running a night and how much time is spent on the admin on the booking on the promotion on like all the little extra things like the posters that are not like there's not a list of things that are required to do in a night but i just kind of take it for granted that those things appear and don't understand that it takes actually quite a lot of effort to do mm. and one thing 
I want to add on top of that because you mentioned a good point about always keeping the lineups mixed. It's like because if you hear the same joke all the time, you're not going to find it funny. But how do you do it so like it's a set sort of brand where they know what they're getting and they like it, like they know what what they're coming in for. The what's interesting is that with the with Laugh Train Home at the Four Thieves specifically, I it's a feeling. <laughs> And I know that sounds really wanky, um, but I can see an acting go, they would work well, they wouldn't work well. And what is, um, and I've had to just learn to trust it. Like I've tried to, again, pass off the booking on somebody else because I don't want to be a booker. I don't want to, I don't want to promote. I've tried to, I've tried to give it to somebody else. Didn't really work. Um, but also there have been tons of acts that are, hugely successful people love that person like that comic and they are by all rights a, a very hilarious professional comedian and i'll go great i can appreciate what you do i don't think they would work in the room and and other people that help me out like on the door doing the admin are like well i don't understand why they like i think they would be great and i'm like they they i know they wouldn't work and it's not that they aren't funny it's they just and then eventually i'll second guess myself and be like you're right you're right they're doing this this and this there's no reason why they don't work and then they go in the room and die and i have to just trust myself and i can't describe it yeah. but i just i just know what would work and what wouldn't work in that room yeah you gotta trust the course you got to yeah exactly <laughs> i've been booking that room long enough to know what works <laughs> yeah. um, so, one thing i want to ask you so with running a gig and sort of being a comedian yourself what in terms of technical skills as a performer do you think that gives you over just being a regular um i I think this also could be crossed over with a lot of extra skills that you gain by being an MC. Um, but understanding the trajectory of energy and flow across the whole show, I think, um, is key. And uh, understanding what the audience is looking for in that night. And again, I it's hmm, you can't regardless if they are three acts that on paper are very different acts um if you have three in acts in a row that are all doing jokes on online dating the audience is gonna get bored Ooh. by the end right and, and it they could be visually different acts they could be again on paper completely if you have content and energy styles that are similar even energy styles, not even content. If you have, then people are gonna get tired by the end um, and recognizing that so that you can be more versatile as an act to bring something that's different. Um, I think as well, understanding as a comic, um, and this is something very specific, but, um, but it does have to do with the whole flow of the night an audience has a certain amount of time that they can be alert and pay attention for. And so what is 
frustrating as a like that you start to learn as a promoter is when people opening or in the middle overrun you are essentially taking that energy that is left for the headliner away from the headliner and so and people some acts that don't understand how the night is put together as a whole they don't understand that because they go well i'm storming it I, I like i they like me the audience is going to be sad if i leave after my allotted time because they love me right now but what they're not understanding is that yeah they probably would love you for another x amount of minutes but then for the last x amount of minutes of the headliner they will be worn out and that's not fair for the whole night so yeah. that is something um to pay attention to but also um and again this is something with like if you it's an interesting question of like skills as a promoter transferring it to a comic because the other way around is quite straightforward mm. but uh um i think uh, it's more admin as well like some of the things that you learn from being a promoter that changes the way you act as an act so things like um confirmations showing up on time uh canceling last minute um understanding like understanding fees as well and that like uh, yeah. you know like it costs a lot of money that to put on a comedy night it's not just you sold 100 tickets at five pounds therefore there should be 500 pounds to pay acts it's not how it works no like there's a lot of other costs in there so understanding that side of things understanding um promotion like it is a lot of times promoters are not getting paid to promote and so things like sending your photo to a promoter uh sending your bio to a promoter if a promoter asks for a quote that they can use a lot of that stuff uh retweeting liking a tweet like just just giving a retweet and a lot of and again there is a caveat of the knacks on tour i understand that but there is just matching some sort of effort is um i think really important and it's not about like nobody's gonna see my one retweet because i don't have fans it's about a cumulative amount of visual stimuli in the ethos so if somebody doesn't even read your tweet but is scrolling on twitter and sees six retweets great that will yeah. stick out more than zero retweets and then later when they see it on eventbrite they still might not buy tickets but then eventually they end up at a bar that happens to have that brand going and go i've seen that before and it's all cumulative and um so i think on the admin side of things you can yeah. take away um i think there's things that acts could appreciate more if they were a promoter there's yeah there's a lot to unpack then to add to what you've said which have been very interesting <laughs> yeah. points because um i remember doing an mc workshop with barry ferns and he says that a lot of people that are top of their game they pay very close attention to every little detail and what you said there is a pure example of that as you said, every little helps the Tesco advert. Yeah. 
<laughs> oh yeah but being an MC, that is a that you can so much um some of the best like recognizing as an MC, watching the whole night so you know what's gone on um yeah. but also i remember like again attention to detail um i was doing the comedy store in sydney and i was doing it for a week and so you have the same lineup all week and the MC after two nights, um, very specifically started asking people, asking, like finding out if there was a couple in the front row in his own way after two nights. And I just noticed it and was like, huh, because that's very helpful. I had one bit that I was doing all the time that relied on me knowing that there was a couple that was together for a long amount of time. And I am perfectly capable of finding out that information when I'm on stage, but you know, the, I'm, not doing the longest set like in a pie can be slicker and I asked him about it and he went well yeah I've been watching the show and saw that it was helpful for you to know if this couple was together for you know a long period of time so I just figured I would do the work for you so you could just do the jokes and I was like that it, that is such a good MC to to watch and now go this would be helpful for this person to know so I'm gonna do it for them and that's just such um that's the attention to detail that makes somebody a ah. great MC, and that's because he's seen you perform, so he knows that you do bits yeah. on couple, so he could like preamble you. Right, and so if I'm hosting a night with um, acts, I mean, I always ask them anyway, and like if there's anything they want me to say, not say, do not do, and some people are like, oh well, I like am talking a lot about babies so if you could not talk about babies that's fine like that is that's one thing but also if i know if um if i know an act has a lot about dating then i will not talk about dating before i bring them on because then that is overload of that subject and so it's those kind of details that i think are important one thing I do want to add as well, because I spoke to a comedian called Darren A. Hill in New Zealand, and he's he talked we talked a bit about MCing, and he one thing that he is a pet peeve of him is when comedians do the where you from, what you do sort of thing. But he, he what he feels what he tries to do is he plays a little game with them, where they where he says who here is the prettiest like if anyone's in a couple like who here's the better looking one and then like gets them to stand up or whatever and then if i'm not saying in good detail but he plays yeah, a little yeah, game no, to try and <laughs> engage with them I mean, uh, rather than sort of like just talk to them straight away before he talks to them i mean it's a style like i think it's something that um that I mean if you're like there's a lot there <laughs> first of all that is I mean that's a specific bit that I think having if he had shared that and then if he saw somebody else do that same bit I think that's the same thing as um jokes yeah jokes like that is a thing that he does but equally I think that like I'm not saying that other people haven't come up with it because there's there are certain MC tropes that everybody uses that isn't, but that I think is specific enough that that is probably his. Um, but I, every MC has their different style, and I think that equally, some people 
could, depending on your looks and your demeanor, could get away with uh, asking whoever is the better looking one in the couple to stand up. And some people couldn't. And I think it's about where the power balance is in the room. So if you have, I, and I don't know who he is, but I would imagine if you are an alpha male who is a very like uh, player-esque, highly masculine exuding straightness gets up and is <laughs> trying to force a couple to evaluate themselves based on their looks, it's not going to go down as well as if um, a woman did it or somebody who like you have to look at who is like I find a lot of times I can flirt with people on stage in a way that I could not do if I was a man oh yes yes so I think that you everybody has a different emceeing style and that style has to fit your persona so while that's great that that works for that guy I I wouldn't do it that's not my style but I'm not saying it's not funny and I'm not saying it's wrong I think everybody there's no right or wrong for audience interaction I think it's funny or not funny and that you got to find your own style and make it your own well so one of the things that you sort of alluded to there in terms of the benefits of running your gig and emceeing is like in terms of maybe when you're doing a show, an Edinburgh show, you understand the importance of like trying to get an audience in selling tickets. You understand the lot of sort of the production of a show and like the way it flows in terms of producing a good show. Um, you, yeah, you read the room more as an MC. That, but I mean, the promoting side sort of overrides into that. And then... Well, and you have your own, you develop, would you say emceeing helps you develop your character on stage more so than just being a straight stand-up? Oh yeah, 100%. Because I think when you're emceeing, you're, you are yourself and there's less, um, I don't want to say pressure to be funny because there's pressure to be funny as an emcee the whole night. Basically the success of the night rides on what you've brought to the table. But um, I think, but yeah I mean it does for me when I'm emceeing it's a very raw version of who I am on stage so it's helped me figure out who I am on stage I would say that now one thing I want to ask you is that I've seen a lot of big American comics come over to the UK and do their sort of shows and they've gone on for like two hours like an hour and a half and one thing I've found recently in running in my own shows, if I shorten the length to them to just an hour, and I found that the show's a lot lighter. And the thing that I find quite interesting is, yeah, even, even if I like these big American comics, I get really tired when it gets like past an hour. Like that's, that, it, it stretches my patience, no matter who it is, I feel. <laughs> I mean, are you asking me what I prefer or? <laughs> no, what, what's, what, yeah, what's what would you say is the ideal sort of time slot for a show? And like, um, um, I mean, I so I'm American, but I started over here, so I have gigged very little, small amounts in the states, um, and so I also know that they are used to a different format. Even um, in the trajectory of skill across the night, um, a lot of times in the states they will go from least experienced to most experienced across the night whereas we oh. obviously have our least experienced in the middle and open spots 
So, and that is typically, obviously, there are differences to every rule. Um, also, I mean, they are, don't have intervals. Like, there's a lot of structural differences between America and here, and my experiences in the UK. Um, what I think that uh, it's, I think part of the two-hour shows from American Comics also comes from the fact that there is such a stratification of income uh, in terms of American lineups. So a lot of times like the headliner may be the only person who's getting paid on the night or the MC in the headliner. So you, over here, you can be an opener and still make a living uh, stand up. Um, and so I think because of that, that is why their sets have extended. I know, and again, this is not for everywhere in the States and not everywhere in Boston, but um, gigging in Boston, somebody had told me, cause like the MC just came on and did 10 minutes of material at the start and then introduced the acts, which is very, it's a different role than over here. And I asked why the MC wasn't doing crowd work if they were hosting. And they were like, well, because if the headliner is doing an hour and they're going last, if anybody covers any of the same material um, and not specific jokes, just topics, then you want to leave all of the, out of respect, you leave all of the crowd work to the headliner so that they can do as much crowd work if, as they want without all of those questions having already been asked. Now, this was just one Boston comic explaining why they weren't doing crowd work and I have heard that that is a Boston centric thing and that it's not necessarily how it is everywhere in the States or that there's some controversy there, but that is one thought point. Um, over here, I think when you get, obviously if you look at a Edinburgh show versus a 20 minute set, that's kind of exactly what you're talking about. Like the 20 minute set club set is going to be very lighthearted, punchy at Edinburgh show is going to have a, or more of a journey and you're going to have greater meaning and uh singy. oh <laughs> yeah um i so i don't know what the ideal amount of time is i think it depends on what you're looking for if you're looking to get drunk in a comedy club then 10s and 20s are great um yeah if you're looking to Whoa. Have comedy change your life. Yeah. Are you okay? <laughs> oh, it's a bit. It's a bit. It's been oh. a bit. I can't hear that. It's a bit. It's gone a bit. It's gone a bit zingy, and I can't. Couldn't hear what you the last bit you said. Oh, I don't know why that is. I I I can't hear that in my my sound. Sounds normal. Okay. And am, am I coming across okay on your side as well? Yeah, you're coming across totally fine. Uh, try muting okay. and unmuting your sound. Here. Me. Okay. Is that any better? It's all good now. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so where where did you hear up to? So you got in a bit where you were saying about the different structures of the different scenes as a whole. And like you were okay. saying, like, yeah, that's, and you got like, to the bit where you're talking about a 20 minute set being very punchy over uh, here. 
Yeah. So if you're looking to get drunk on a Saturday night, then you probably want sets that are 10 to 20 minutes long. They're going to be lighthearted. And also when you have drunk people in a club, they're not really going to be able to focus for that long. Having said that, like, um, if you're, I mean, what I, my favorite bits about comedy are its ability to make people think and to change, um, change people's thought process or like to influence people. Like I, I, I love that comedy has an ability to access people when their guards are down, like when they're laughing, their guards are down. And so you can talk about uh, deeper things. And so that's why I love hour long shows, but that is just my personal preference. Um, and I know in America, they don't have the Edinburgh show as much as we do over here. Um, I've just, I've chatted to some American comics who had done the Edinburgh Fringe for the first time and just went, if I'd known what this was supposed to be, what I like, I just brought an hour of great stand-up. Whoops. <laughs> that was yeah. not what I was supposed to do. So I, I don't think you can really say what an ideal amount of time is. It's just um, personal preference. It's funny you say that because I hear that in America, they, the headliner gets 45 minutes or something like that in certain scenes. Yeah, 45 minutes to an hour. But again, I think part of that is because they're getting paid disproportionately more to everybody else. So they should be doing the most time. Um, I think it's, I mean, it's about experience. I don't know why they do it like that. Um, but I, I started over here. So I don't have a great knowledge of the American stand-up scene. Oh, one thing I want to ask is how like what would you how would you describe your journey in stand-up as a whole like how you started to where you are now and like what have been the challenges and um so i i've had several careers i did before stand-up so i did biology and marine biology research. I did uh, landscape architecture is actually what brought me to the UK. So worked on like large scale uh, urban development, um, traveled the world doing that, uh, and then did a stand-up comedy course on a whim um, and fell in love with it. And I've been doing that since 2011. Um, and my journey in stand-up has been interesting. <laughs> I mean, I think it's been both a gift and a hindrance that I started stand-up so late in life. Um, I think it's a gift because I have so much life experience to draw from. And my science and architecture background mean that I have a different way of thinking about things and that has finally started influencing my stand-up in a very positive way um but on the flip side of it I started stand-up when I was almost 30 so there's a that is late <laughs> it is late in life um and that's that's frustrating but um I don't know what I don't know which one I would prefer um, my journey itself, I, I started, started out primarily just writing dick jokes. 
um, <laughs> which for is a lot of people's starting point. It's just a, a good thing to easy go to. Red, red joke about the old penises. Um, it happens. <laughs> and then, uh, and then actually, so I did, um, I, Binti Blair, who runs Hot Water Comedy Club, good friend of mine. And um, when they were doing their Seal Street Club or designing it, so I, because I used to be an architect, um, went up to Liverpool for four or five days and, uh, and designed the club um, on like, just did we, Binti and I just spent three or four days together just drawing stuff out like, and I still have the floor plans uh, hand-drawn, not for construction. And before I left, we went in with spray paint cans, marked out everything. Cause the building that they had was just a cement shell of a building. You just had I-beams, cement floor, that was it. So we went in, outlined everything, uh, and then they got a contractor in to build the whole thing, which was amazing uh, to see <laughs> such an amazing club uh, come out of something that I had drawn, which was very cool. But the best thing that came out of those three days is that um, after spending three or four days with him, he was like, no offense, but you are way more interesting as a person than your stand-up makes you seem because again up until that point in time I was just telling dating stories and um and he's like I don't understand why you don't talk about science at all and there were like bits of science in my stand-up but not really I think that <laughs> one of them was like a math problem that I made up about a guy wanking on a train platform. Like you, <laughs> like <laughs> it was way smarter than it should have been for the joke that what it was. Um, and so from that <laughs> point in time, I started, I realized that I overanalyze everything in my life and um, not everybody uh, does that. So like if I got an idea for a joke for like a premise, my first thing, my first go-to that I do is I start researching it. Like I just will. And I thought everybody did that. <laughs> like I thought, all right, great. I think it's really funny that, you know, porcupines are like, they have spikes on them. I'm going to write a joke about porcupines. Now, instead of me going from the top of my head, what porcupines look like or like, and things that everybody would assume to know about porcupines, I would start researching porcupines and look up all these obscure facts about what, like just delve into it from a research point of view and then let the jokes come out of that. And I just assumed everybody did that. So from then I started basically over just researching every problem in my life. And that's kind of where my standup is now taken and gone. Okay. I'm, bad at making decisions. So I'm going to look uh, at the neuroscience of how our brains make decisions and figure out why I'm bad at decisions. Uh -huh. And the same thing, like I'm bad at dating. Great. I'm going to look at the science behind why we love and explain it through science. And so that's how, that's where my stand-up journey has taken me now, which is, um, which is working out. So, but it's nice to have those moments. And actually, again, the last time I was at the Sydney Comedy Store, um, 
I was having dinner with one of the comics and it was, we were talking about this and he's like, but I don't, because up until this point in time, my club set was quite different from my science, my Edinburgh shows. So my club set still dating story, whatever. And then you'd have all my science comedy. And he was like, I don't understand why you're not doing science comedy in your club sets. <laughs> and I was like, but nobody wants to hear about science comedy on a Friday night. And he's like, mm, I disagree. And, and he was emceeing, uh, different emcee from the other time. But um, he was like, all right, well, tomorrow night, I'm going to introduce you as a comedian who used to be a scientist. And then you have to do science jokes. <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah which was uh which is awesome uh it was actually valentine's day so i think i got off the hook a little bit because i it was able to fit in the neuroscience of love pretty easily into the set but um i think that was another crucial moment so since then i mean that was valentine's day 2020 so it's not like i've really had a lot of stage time to try to implement this but <laughs> But I, uh, yeah, I'm trying to, I'm trying to go that direction. Yeah, that is, I think that's my journey. Um, and then in lockdown, one of the, I finally started a show called Comedy for the Curious, which is a stand-up science chat show. And the idea is that every episode is a different topic. Um and I will have one or two comedian guests on who are not science-based at all. And so the idea is that I do a science comedy set on the topic and they do short stand-up sets on the exact same topic, but from a different angle. Uh, and then we have a chat about it. So that's been really fun, actually. Ah. And you yeah. also do a cooking show as well, don't you? Mm. yeah we will see if that continues i don't know um <laughs> yeah where i'm just teaching comics how to how to cook live uh and the idea of that was that you're making something completely within the hour i hate cooking shows where you just watch them but they've like already done half the prep and like miraculously the stew's already been sitting for eight hours and it's kind of like well the idea is that you can cook along with it because otherwise you're just watching a cooking show and taking notes and that's the same thing as reading a recipe book but if you're cooking along with it then the idea is that everybody can cook along ah so what's what's your favorite dish your full english breakfast or fish and chips pie and mash oh <laughs> uh, no i'm laughing for a different reason i think my uh i'm laughing because i have online comedy is so frustrating i have put my heart into my science comedy show and inherently the cooking show is just the thing that people like more so oh. <laughs> like it's just yeah it's heartbreaking but um that's okay uh my favorite dish is i don't know the one that i've done i do like risottos i think i think i actually i think i i like it because i've I've tackled it. I now understand the steps of a risotto. So I like messing with it and I don't follow ingredients ever. Somebody actually messaged me on Facebook being like, can I have the recipe to what you made? And I'm like, there is no recipe. I made it up. Um, <laughs> like I just, I made it up. Um, 
video that I made for one of them that I think is really unique. And it was, I almost was on Come Dine With Me in 2014, maybe? 13, 14, maybe 2013, I don't know. I made it basically, they pick out like 10 people. Uh, this is for the Christmas special in Clapham. And then a different person will, um, like a independent person picks the top five out of the top 10 that come dine with me select. And so I had like a TV crew in my house and we did this whole interview and everything. Uh, I was not chosen. I don't know why. Anyway, they missed out. I would have been amazing. Um, but you got to submit like a recipe and because it was for the Christmas special, I like had submitted like a three course meal and um, this pesto that I had uh, that I made up that I we did make the other day was um, a pesto made out of juniper berries and rosemary and thyme. And that is mixed in with some fresh mozzarella instead of not pasta, but it's like a cold salad. And we made pine needles out of the skins of sweet potatoes and all this other oh. stuff. So yeah, it was very good. I need to make that again. I really like it. It's an odd combination, but it's very good. Well, maybe you could mix the things together, your science and the cooking. Like you could say, oh, here's, here's, here's a great bit of dish whilst I show you how to do this. Um, well, I, one of the things that I am working on that might uh, come to fruition in the future is looking at um, the science. Yeah, like a, like a science but the science of certain dishes you know like but also explaining like what happens to the onions when you caramelize them why do people cry when they cut onions things like that like that is more cooking so it is it is in the making we are we're thinking about it yeah so did you so i'm with the science show did you get any funny instances where you what's it called said e equals mc squared and you got blank faces or like you must have some funny stories where you've given some scientific experiment and you've got some hilarious response from it what do you mean uh i don't fully with your science show when you're doing all this with different people that aren't expert in science what's been a funny reaction to something you've done on that show oh i mean i think most comics are really interested with the science behind it, but because I, I break it down into stuff that like, I don't baby people, but they, it's understandable. I don't, I don't understand. Like, I don't expect them to do science. I just, um, it's, um, I'm just doing a, a, a 15 to 20 minute set on the science behind stuff. So hi. <laughs> yeah. ah. So I don't, sorry, I just don't fully understand what you're asking. Well, because <laughs> you're doing a science show where, which you're an expert in, you're talking about the science behind this or that. I mean, yeah. do, do you get any, what, what's been a funny incident with the show? What's, um, uh, do you have a story to tell on it? <laughs> okay. Um, Like the jokes are funny. I don't, I guess I don't, there haven't been any like bloopers or things that people don't understand. I don't like. But have you had any sort of interesting, has anything happened in the show that's made you think like, oh, that's interesting. Oh, I'm surprised by that. Oh, or like, 
that that's taught you something with the show or like that you you remember from it okay any memorable moments sorry i'm just kind of uh sorry i was thrown by the question um tell you what I okay will... there is um all right one of the things that so one of the topics that we've done um is bisexuality and so i had done a, a bunch of research on um the genetics behind sexual orientation and how much of your sexual orientation is actually down to genes uh versus um epigenetics versus actual life experience and what the studies have said um and there's a lot of so by erasure as well so um a lot of people don't believe especially in men um that bisexuality is a thing i just think that people are uh transitioning to being gay and and want like a stopover point or whatever the hell people assume um, and there was actually a study that was put out during lockdown um, or published during lockdown. Obviously, it had been going on for quite a bit of time, but uh, called uh, Robust Evidence for Bisexual Orientation Among Men. And so I have a whole bit on why this is absolutely insane that in 2020, we need a scientific study that was led by 13 scientists, including a Harvard professor, uh, to like prove that bisexuality exists. Um, and so I have like a whole five minute bit about this, obviously, like looking into how the study was actually made and whatever. Uh, but after the last show that we did, um, there was somebody who uh, stayed after on the Zoom call to chat, and they were like, well, you know, why this is, is because um, there was a New York Times, I think New York Times uh, publisher who, and I have the article as well, but who basically published a very um, famous article, uh, which, hold on, I'll tell you the name of, um, which got a lot of publicity. But so anyway, so the article, I think it was something like uh, gay, straight, or like indecisive or something like that. Um, but it was a very widely published article that basically said that bisexuality doesn't exist. And this study was involved the same author that basically went, when I wrote that article, I was wrong. And that is why in 2020, this study was done was an apology and a a correction going look we don't need to say this in 2020 but i need to say this in 2020 so that it takes away the credibility of the previous publication and study because bisexuality actually exists and so finding that out was actually quite a interesting thing that i learned that i you know didn't fully get from the research so I mean, it, it is, it's a comic gold mine in a way that like this is because I've just got an image now of like in America and the UK, we have very laddie behavior, like in certain sports. And like when they sort of banter and they say this and that, <laughs> it just brings a whole meaning to it. You know, if in school, when if someone says you're in your, you're a homo or whatever, it's, I mean, it would be a big sort of thing, but it's, it brings a whole new meaning to it. It's like with that, um, 
glee program with that that when one of the characters who was gay got bullied by a guy who was um a latent homosexual i don't understand okay. I, i'm sorry i'm very confused the point i'm getting at is i think it brings it would be funny to see what would happen if if you brought that case up to someone who in football rooms or american football rooms like in the chambers oh. and you said that to them got it if that they as like proof and evidence somebody who is blatantly homophobic yeah i i mean <laughs> yeah but that is i mean one of the one of the I, another very interesting episode that we did was uh why people hate um and i think obviously hate comes from a a point well it comes from extreme love of your group i won't go into the whole uh science behind it because it is uh too long um <laughs> but and also also relates to um another one which was based around politics but actually quite interesting around um how some people with larger right amygdalas are will require different things to change their mind than people with an enlarged interior singular cortex and typically those two things relate to conservatives and liberals so one of the studies have found that conservatives have a larger right amygdala which means that they make decisions based on emotion more um, and liberals have a larger interior singular cortex which means that typically if they are if they do have that brain structure then they would make decisions based on facts and so the idea is that if you are trying to get somebody who is conservative to change their mind then presenting a bunch of fact wouldn't necessarily work but if you're trying to get a liberal to change their mind then presenting facts um, is the best way to do it and that actually people with a larger interior singular cortex are more likely to change their minds whereas somebody with an enlarged amygdala is looking for more stability and so it'd be harder to change their mind. So ironically, just showing uh, them an article and going, look, these are the facts bisexuals exist is actually the not the right way to change somebody who might be conservative um, <laughs> to change their mind, but actually making it into a joke, uh, which would access their um, emotions and uh, <laughs> evoke empathy would be actually the way to get the, um, homophobic uh conservative football player to believe that bisexuality exists <laughs> uh, it could be a good sort of comic sketch in a way if you're edgy if you <laughs> <laughs> yeah i guess yeah no you're <laughs> uh yeah it, there's a lot of um assumptions that i just said first of all uh, I by no way am saying that conservative people are homophobic. I was saying you I, you have both homophobic liberal people and homophobic conservative people, obviously. Uh, I feel like the um, to do it in a comedy sketch, you'd have to... So many caveats. I don't know. So many caveats. <laughs> yep yes yeah i understand there's probably something there just a lot of playing with fire though <laughs> yes but they could, could no let's not go there <laughs> uh, so one of the things i want to ask you is 
how like you've been in the comedy industry in the UK for a while. How has let's let's how has the, the industry changed and like what would you say if a comedian wants to regress in the scene well before pandemic what do you think they need to do to grow and develop their career in the UK? um stage time there is um the biggest piece of advice that i could give my former self would have been to wait until i'm ready i tried to push myself into gigs that I was not ready for um and when you do a gig that you're not ready for and if you don't do well then you will find it infinitely harder to get back in with that club when you actually are ready and so the best thing I would tell my former self would be to take your time develop the craft don't you can never play a club too late, but you can play a club too early. Um, and so I think the best piece of advice to, to give anybody is stage time and the fact that you can learn something from every single gig. There is not a single gig that you can't learn from ever. It just, it just doesn't exist. And so I think the, and equally no two rooms can ever, no live performance can ever be the same. Even if you get the exact same audience in the exact same room, it'll be on different nights and different things will have happened in those audience members' lives between the last performance and the current performance, which will change the perception of that material. And so you can never have the same room twice. And because of that, you just need to gig and diversify the clubs that you're working for. Because working in... If you play, if 80% of your work comes from the same club, then you are not going to be as well equipped for a different type of audience or a different type of club. Or there are just hundreds and hundreds of different types of clubs and gigs. So just play them all. Yeah. Like I know, uh, Merce Control gets a lot of crap for um, sending open spots for no money all around the country. But to be honest, like I, I learned a lot from those gigs. With so following on from that, what are sort of things you've learned in regards to playing different rooms? So if you're in a big rugby club or football club where they're a bit bloody, like what they what or if they're like sort of millennials, Generation Z, and they're really sort of nice and friendly, or if they're sort of maybe very old and conservative and they're rich, or if, or if you're up north, like how do you sort of adjust your set accordingly? Um, I think that's a very independent question. So, I mean, I could, I could give you an answer, but it wouldn't apply to anybody but me. Um, so I think the most overriding or the most general thing that I would do is um, that's a situation where having your MC skills really helps, but also being present in the room. Um, and like one of the worst deaths, top three, I'd say in my entire com comedy career was, uh, I made it to the bath new act final about three months after I started. 
uh nobody else in the final had been going under a year they were there i mean there was somebody there that had been going eight years or something i had no business being there i made it on a wild card and um I, the final was at 7 p.m. on a Sunday in Bath, and uh, I, again, had nothing but dirty material, because this was the first three months, and I had, I had seven minutes of very dirty material, and we had to do a seven to eight minute set, and so I had to do all of my jokes every single joke that I had written had to come out of my mouth because I had to hit at least seven minutes and I only had seven minutes and I had never emceed so I didn't have that skill set um and I went up there and just died it was awful um but I also wasn't present in the room and if I had been present in the room the best thing I could have done is gone hey guys um just so you know uh i only have dirty material and <laughs> that's it i'm a new act i understand by your faces and your lack of laughter that you hate everything that i represent but legally i have to deliver it so as long <laughs> as you know that you're gonna hate it i'm not gonna have any fun let's carry on and i think if i had like even said something remotely like that uh and i could have even done the exact same material but just every joke been like dick joke number one let's move on to number two this one is gonna get more graphic and i think that if i had just like i could go back and probably deliver the exact same set that i did that night with like but emceed it and been aware and let the audience know that I was aware that this was going to die and let them in on it, that they actually would have found it a lot funnier, not for the, the way that the jokes were intended, but it would have been a much more enjoyable night. But because they, because I wasn't present in the room, I'm sure the entire audience was like, um, does she, does she know that we don't like this? Like, why are you still doing this? Why are you still going? Why are you not stopping? Why are you not doing different jokes? We don't like dirty material. We're not laughing. So I think that's the best way. And actually, um, a few years later was in another comedy competition final that again, pool did horribly. Um, and that was because I wasn't present again. I should have set up the room. And instead I just went up there and was like, I'm just gonna do my jokes instead of going, this is gonna be an impossible gig. Or like what I really should have done is, um, cause the room wasn't set up well. There was nobody sitting in the front four rows. Uh, it was just a dire gig and I should have just, if it wasn't a competition, I would have spent my five minutes setting up the room better for everybody else. And that's what I should have done. But, I mean, those are, yeah, those are things that you learn. What, what, um, what, are th what are things you, how do you sort of prepare for a room when you just, if you're dub, so when you're doubling up and like you don't have that time to ascertain the audience, how do you prep there? Uh, I ask the MC. Just a simple Hello, what's going on? Tell me a bit about yeah. it. Yeah. Is there anything I should know? Um, yeah. 
Is there anything I should know about the gig? What's happened? Who's in the front row? Who's been talked to? Okay. Yeah. And from everything that's happened so far, I mean, it's it, 2020 has, has been a bit of a roller coaster in a way, but not always in the good. Yeah, it's been a bit of a roller coaster. <laughs> How do you see like the future of comedy shaping out and what do you think is going to happen in the fringe and yeah how do you see the circuit oh i have no idea i mean i you're talking to somebody who in march i was like there's no way they're going to cancel the melbourne fringe like or melbourne comedy festival not melbourne fringe very different things sorry um yeah i have no idea I don't know. I mean, I think that people are forced to make online content, but equally, I think the United Kingdom is uh, sick of seeing online content. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to. You don't want to think about it. I worry that the circuit's going to get more striated and that um, that because of the lack of stage time, when we do open up, um, it's going to be people are going to be drawn to tv credits more than ever and that's scary but, but yeah on the f- even though things are troubling and things are all that one of the things about comedy is that i mean when when it works well it is probably the one of the best feelings you can ever have yeah oh it's amazing amazing <laughs> like how would you describe the process? Like you spend all these hours working a craft and then you have that, those moments where you just destroy a gig. I mean. I, I don't know. It's like why you, why you got into it. Like there's nothing better than the feeling of laughter from an audience like that just gets you. It's amazing. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what else to say. I just, it's amazing. <laughs> it's awesome. I love it. It's why I do it. That's why we do it, and that's that's what we got to keep doing. Yeah, um, just... I just want to say thank you for taking the time to appear on the podcast. I really appreciate you being here, and I want to ask you sort of two sort of questions before we go. Okay. What life advice, not non stand up related, would you give yourself to your younger self? And what is a quote that you'd like to live your life by? Um. The quote, uh, nothing in the world is accomplished without passion, I would say, uh, is my favorite quote, I think. Yeah, because it's true. You got to love, nobody does stand up for the money. You do it because you love it. And I do love it. Um, and advice for my former self would be, there's, just take your time and yeah, take your time. Take your time. Patience. That's it. I know that's, yeah, patience. And believe, I don't know, like, uh, do it for yourself. You don't need other people's validation. Yeah. It's a funny that's thing, it. isn't it? When oh, you're younger. Yeah, validation is cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. Now, one more question I'd like to ask is, is there anything you'd like to plug? Yes. I So I think um, 
I do have a science comedy chat show, which I love, uh, which is called Comedy for the Curious. We have an Instagram handle. It is at Comedy for the Curious. Um, but also, if you do want to watch the cooking show, if it comes back up, uh, I guess <laughs> the best thing would be to follow me on Instagram or Twitter, um, which is at Robin H. Perkins. Uh, I'll have information about both shows on there. Um, so Instagram or Twitter. And then I think my Facebook is Miss Robin Perkins at the moment. Um, but yeah, Robin H. Perkins and I have science comedy chat show, comedy for the curious. And uh, at some point in time, there will be a new cooking show. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, just send, send me them in Facebook and I'll, I'll plug them on the podcast. Sweet. I just want to say, yeah, it's, it's good to see you again. And yes. I think best wishes for everything. And I hope to see you soon. Thank you. Yeah, hope to see you soon at a gig live. But thank you so much for having me. It's been been fun. You've asked me some questions that I haven't been asked before, uh, which is good. <laughs> and I want thinking. Yeah, thank you. Okay. <laughs> All right. Have a good day. Bye. <laughs> so that's been Robin Perkins. She is fantastic. She's hilarious. And she's a very talented comedian. Please check her out. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it. It was very insightful talking to her and I hope if you're a comedian or if you want to present or any sort of aspects of comedy or anywhere this has been useful for you she's very smart she's very analytical and also one thing I want to say if you like the episode give it a review on iTunes again and I'll see you at the next episode take care